This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. This is the Best Friends Podcast. Hello, welcome. It is October the 13th. My name is John Dunn. Very glad to have you here for episode 132 with this week's guest. She's a journalist. She's an author, a manatee enthusiast. And if you've seen a viral animal-related story on, say, the Huffington Post, the Dodo, Bart Post, or any number of other outlets over the last few years, I would say there's a good chance that the byline is that of our guest this week, Aaron Greenwood. So coming up in 90 seconds, my conversation with Erin, we talk not only about her and her career, but she also shares some great tips on how you can create compelling content and how you can find and create meaningful, helpful relationships with journalists. But first, a very quick update. If you are a regular listener of the podcast, you know that over the last few weeks, I've been promoting some of our Best Friends Network partner events, including the National Adoption Weekend, the most recent of which took place last month in September. So the way these work, it's pretty simple. Participating network partner organizations are offered a stipend for each adoption they complete over the course of the event. Best Friends pays that stipend. We also offer marketing toolkits. We, of course, help get the word out about the promotion. So how did it go in September? Simply put, you smashed it. More than 11,000 animals were adopted from more than 660 partners. That resulted in almost $410,000 in stipends sent out to the participating network partners. All that in just three days. Amazing. And of course, there are so many amazing stories that came out of the event, and you know we're not going to keep those a secret. Check out the show notes. You'll find a link to a wrap-up. It's got plenty of stories and photos, which will definitely brighten your day. Now, if you missed out on the September event, we've got another one coming up in December. They've been so successful, and I think we can all agree that getting animals out into homes right now is as important as ever. So please take advantage of these opportunities. As I said, there's a link in the show notes on your podcast player to the wrap-up story, but also a link to the registration form for the December event. The deadline to sign up, it's still a few weeks away, but don't put it off, especially if you need to have your shelter or rescue organization signed up and registered as a network partner. You need to be one to participate, but no big deal. It's free. It's easy. Our team just needs a little more time ahead of the event to get you signed up as a partner. So again, check out the links in the show notes. Okay, so here we go. My interview with author, journalist, manatee enthusiast, viral story creator extraordinaire, Aaron Greenwood. Aaron, before we talk about anything, uh, you are in Florida, and at least as far as Hurricane Ian was concerned, you're in the wrong part of Florida, in the St. Petersburg area. So how was Ian for you? Hopefully, you and yours, everybody's doing okay. Yeah, I, John, we got so lucky here in St. Petersburg. It looked for a while like Ian was going to hit us directly, and it was, I mean, it was all the things you can imagine that somebody would be feeling leading up to that, we were, we were feeling, and then a couple of days before the hurricane actually hit, the models started showing that it might be heading a little bit south of us. I mean, as everybody knows, it just decimated communities an hour or two hours from us. And it's just shocking. It's unreal. So we got extremely lucky and we're just heartbroken for people just a little south of us. And then across the state, too. I mean, Ian really, Ian really did a number on Florida. Well, I'm here in Michigan, so I'm thankful to be able to say I don't have to worry about hurricanes 
you know, I did grow up in Georgia. Occasionally we get the remnants of a storm come through and, and that was certainly scary enough. Um, but I also don't get to see the sun for a good amount of the year up here. So it's a trade-off, I suppose, because uh, I will say Florida does look very nice, especially in February. Yeah, most of the time it's beautiful. I mean, summer summer is always the time that challenges my love for Florida. Summer and political season, <laughs> those, are, those are the times that challenge my love for Florida. But the rest of the year is beautiful. And there's just, I mean, Florida is just a really neat state. I've, I've been here about seven years now, almost eight, I guess. And the nature is so beautiful. I go out paddling with manatees as often as I can during manatee season. You know, just for companion animals, we have some people who are just dedicating themselves to saving the animals who are really at risk here. Yeah, so we, we put up with some, some bad weather and some terrible hurricanes to live here, but I, I love it here mostly. I was planning to bring up the manatees later, but since you mentioned it already, let's do it. Oh yeah, I could record a whole hour on manatees. I'm obsessed with them. <laughs> well, I like the idea of that. Unfortunately, uh, this isn't the podcast for in-depth manatee chat. I don't think they'd let me air that. But the reason I was going to bring it up is that it is relevant to what we're talking about today, content, creating compelling content. So I, I've been trying to not be on Facebook, but you know, checking in uh, the last couple of years, I feel like... I, I do see a lot of posts from you about your love for manatees. You know, you're out walking the dog, looking for them, and you're sharing photos when you see them. I love those posts, and I think a lot of people do. And a big part of that is this excitement and passion you have for them. And I think that really comes through. I mean, it's just hard not to enjoy them. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I'm really pleased to be able to share my passion for manatees with other people and hopefully get them excited. Manatee acts. I mean, maybe we can call them that. Manatee heads. <laughs> I don't know. I just think that they're such wonderful creatures that seem like they shouldn't even really exist. They're like 1,200 pound vegetarian mammals who live in the water, are very peaceful and regulate their buoyancy through farting. I mean, I, I cannot imagine anything better than a manatee, to be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> well, one other item of note that I want to make sure we mention is that your brother, Lee Greenwood, a former colleague of mine here at Best Friends, he was one of our legislative attorneys. Uh, and I want to mention him, uh, if only because he was one of the early subscribers of the Best Friends podcast. Uh, and we appreciate and we miss Lee. We should really just dig this in right here. Lee, I'm on the podcast before you. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he'll love that. I can't wait for that text. Uh, well, listen, I just think it's so interesting. You both have these sort of similar paths. You know, you're both attorneys, mm -hmm. and then both found your way into animal welfare. Just curious, you know, where does that come from? Were animals always a big part of your lives? You know, we get asked that a bunch, and our parents both really love animals. I mean, our parents stop and pet all the dogs too, just like we do. But they are not sort of involved with animal welfare the way that my brother and I have been. I think. I mean, really, it would be so hard to trace this path for either of us. But we both just kind of got lucky, I think, is how you would put it. I, I mean, I got into animal advocacy. I have, as you said, I, I was a lawyer. And then, and even as a lawyer, I got to do some very funky things. I lived out in an island called Saipan for five and a half years, where I worked at their Supreme Court for a couple of years as a lawyer for their chief justice. And then I got to work at their attorney general's office for a couple of years where I got to help create a refugee protection program. And, you know, I mean, it was it was just a very lucky thing. And then I came back to the mainland thinking that I wanted to find a way to be a writer full time, uh, you know, and still have to pay off my student loans. So naturally, I became a freelance journalist. Yeah, very lucrative. Exactly. I mean, I'd say, you know, if anyone needs some quick money being a freelance journalist, <laughs> that's the way to do it. So I came back from Saipan and I sort of was looking for ways to kind of 
try to become a writer full time. That was, I just really wanted to be a writer full time. I had been doing some freelance writing while working as a lawyer. And in fact, one of the first freelance articles I ever got assigned was for the American Bar Association Journal about whether animals could testify in court. I just sort of pitched them this story, thinking like, oh, this would be a really fun thing to look into. And they assigned it. And it was great. I I think that really set the path. But I, I sort of went in and out between sort of policy and government work and journalism. And then I got hired on at the Huffington Post to help launch a new vertical there called the HuffPost DC. So it was all about Washington, D.C., the sort of non-federal political side of it, but actually living in D.C. I, I had always loved animals and, you know, outside of a few articles here and there, like the one I'd written about animals testifying in court, I hadn't really written much about them. But I sort of immediately started reaching out to local shelters and local rescue groups just to, you know, just to introduce myself and started running these adoptable pet slideshows every couple of weeks that our readers loved. And then from there, I... I just started reporting stories about animal welfare and animal sheltering and realizing that that kind of animal welfare touched on every aspect of human life as well. So there was there was law, there was policy, there were the relationships, there's housing, there's fun stuff, there's travel. And I just loved it. As I sort of discovered the richness of this field, my editors also started realizing that our readers were really enjoying this. And I got to turn it into my full-time beat when I was there, which I just just absolutely loved. And Best Friends was one of the organizations I ended up developing a relationship with and writing about and just really appreciating the work that Best Friends was doing. And then I heard about a job um, working on your ledge team and showed it to my brother and said, you should apply for this. And then he did. And then he ended up coming to work for you guys. And, you know, that's that's how we both ended up getting into it. He had been working as a he, had, he was a lawyer, too, and had been working as a lobbyist, and then he was, was on staff with some ledge offices. Um, but he, you know, he really found a passion getting to advocate for animals with best friends. It was great. So the Huffington Post, what year was that when you transitioned into that, you know, more full-time animal welfare writing? Uh, let's see. That's a good question. It was a while ago. I think I started working there full-time in 2012, maybe. And I think it took a couple of years before my full-time job became animal welfare editor, but I was sort of acting like it before <laughs> before job title change. The reason I asked that is I was thinking about viral content and and really just the internet in general and how much things have changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Even like 10 years ago, think about how much different the internet was. Mm-hmm. So you're still writing stories today. I know you're working with uh, Haas. So you're still putting things out that you want to get out there how much have you changed the way you write today versus say 10 years ago, or are you still kind of approaching the storytelling in the same way? I mean, I I've changed it because for the last, I'd say four years or so I've been on the nonprofit communication side of things. So I was writing those stories, I think up until about 2018 or so. And, you know, changing in that, I, I think just my understanding of the, of the whole world of animal welfare had changed. So I tried to include as much, you know, kind of nuanced information and, and, you know, what I wanted the public to get out of it as much as just sort of telling a compelling story about a, a pet rescue or, you know, a pet who needed adoption or something like that. So I, I haven't been writing those particular stories for four or five years now. Um, but yeah, I think, I think in some ways, do you need me to move? We've got. Yeah, if you can, I'm sorry. I, it's such a Florida thing. I think like every time I'm in Florida, uh, there's always a guy with a leaf blower, like everywhere you go. Okay, you're back. Yeah. I, so 
So it was interesting. It's when I started writing these stories, I don't think there were a lot of people writing stories sort of the kind that I was lucky enough to get to do. I think taking the perspective of sort of an individual pet and telling their story and really trying to give the public insight into animal welfare and animal sheltering and, you know, make them feel a connection to it and make them care about it in that way. I, I maybe I'm, I might be wrong about this, but I, I think that was sort of fairly new at that time. And since then it's gotten not at all unusual. I mean, now there's whole publications dedicated to that kind of content, the Dodo, you know, the Dodo didn't exist then. And now it's huge, which is wonderful. I mean, I think the more pet content, the more we can get the public kind of engaged with animals and finding places to express and develop their love for animals and find a way to help animals, I think the better. I mean, I think since sort of those early days, it's changed in that now there's a lot of video content. There's TikTok. I mean, TikTok didn't exist then. And I honestly am still a little bit perplexed by TikTok, even though I think it's great. And everything I see on it is like, oh, wow, this is a really innovative form of storytelling. And it's fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot more outlets to reach people and a lot more ways and great storytelling methods to reach people. So I think in that way, it's really changed. I'm now working on the nonprofit side of things. So I uh, I, after I left HuffPost, I went to BarkPost, and then I was freelance for a couple of years where I was writing for all kinds of places, the Dodo and for Best Friends publications and for the Today Show, the Washington Post, a lot of different places. And then I went on staff at an animal nonprofit, and I've been doing staff and freelance nonprofit work since then. So now I'm doing more content from the nonprofit side. So it's a different kind of storytelling again, but I still get to look at all the great journalism that's being put out about animals and look at all the amazing storytelling that shelters and rescues are putting out about their pets and their work too, which I which I think is really exciting. Well, as far as writing gigs go, I'd be willing to bet your colleagues at the HuffPo were pretty envious of the stories you got to write. And Sure. Yeah. You get to write about animals. That's awesome all on its own, but also because the stories you wrote just got so much traction. Like they were, I mean, like thousands and thousands of shares. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was one of the things that we discovered pretty early on was that readers were really, really into animal stories. And it wasn't even just any one type of animal story. It didn't have to be just sort of what you would think of as viral content. You know, it was in-depth pieces about policy issues facing animals. It was you know, just all kinds of stories. Readers, readers loved them, loved them, read them, shared them. It was incredibly rewarding. And I felt so lucky because I really felt like I got to build a real relationship with readers too. I mean, I got to build a real relationship with my sources. So, you know, I felt a lot of emotional investment in their successes too. You know, I wanted the shelters to succeed. I wanted the fosters, the adopters, the policymakers, you know, the advocates, I wanted all of them to succeed. But then also I just readers, I would hear from readers constantly. I got emails all the time, Facebook messages, just, it was wonderful. It was really rewarding. Well, let's get into some tips as far as writing compelling content, shall we? You know, as I said earlier, the internet landscape today, it's so different, right? We've seen this democratization of technology. It's easier than ever before to create content, anyone can do it, right? And then of course the changes that we've seen in the ways that we consume content. I don't think competition is the right word because we're talking about causes, but there's more content created daily now than ever before. There are more platforms. 
So again, competition, funny word in this context, right? But that's really what it is because we're competing for eyeballs. So I'm not sure how you want to do this if it's you know a few tips or whatever, but I'd love to know about your process when it comes to writing and putting the story together that you know you hoped would be the next one to get millions of impressions. I mean, obviously photos and videos are a really important part of that. So having pictures, let's say, let's just take for example, let's say there's a dog and you're trying to get people interested in this dog. Pictures that help build emotional engagement with the dog. You know, it doesn't have to be sort of professional quality pictures. It doesn't have to be, you know, a picture of them sitting like a very good dog, but something where there's a look in their eye or you capture an expression or you capture a moment. And it's very hard to sort of make a list of what makes that kind of picture, but it's sort of a, you know, when you see it kind of a thing, it's the picture where you put your hand over your heart, you know, where you want to share it with the with your mom or you want to share it with your best friend because there's just something about this picture that captures your attention and, and grabs you and makes you feel an emotional connection. So you want to look for pictures like that and they can be blurry, they can be amateurish, they can be candid. I mean, sometimes candid is better than professional because it feels more authentic, but just something, something that really grabs you and, you know, just go with your gut. If this is the picture that makes your heart go pitter patter, it's going to make other people's heart go pitter patter too. And I'd say it's very similar with the stories that you're telling, you know, make sure that you've got sort of engagement in there in the sense of the details that are going to make people feel a connection with whatever the story is that are going to grab their attention. that are going to make them feel some urgency, some, some love, some worry, some, something that's going to, that's going to grab them. And one thing to be, I would say to be very careful of when doing that is not to use jargon because jargon is off putting, you know, jargon puts up a barrier between you and readers. The example that I usually give is HW plus. We all know what that means, but regular people out in the world don't. So when you use a term like HW plus in your social media posts or your stories or however it is that you're communicating with the public, that's one thing that's going to make people read that and think, oh, this isn't for me. You know, that's that's a moment where you're you're sort of uh, repelling emotional engagement instead of instead of grabbing it. That's an interesting example. And to be clear, that is heartworm positive. Heartworm positive. Right. That's right there. I just used the jargon. <laughs> it's okay. You're amongst our B2B network partner friends, but just in case my dad is listening, that's heartworm positive. And that's a condition. I mean, it's curable, right? Highly curable. You do have to follow a protocol, restrict exercise, et cetera. You know, it's not the hardest thing, but it's not the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about an adoptable pet, should I be sharing that in an adoption bio or a Facebook post? Like, I'm not suggesting anyone lie. Please, nobody do that. But I'm curious where your line is for that. You know, again, not asking for a legal opinion, of course, but the writing styles that you've done across the spectrum, right? This very technical, legal writing, and then you've got your uh, HuffPo kind of very emotional type writing. Is there a balance that you think we should all be trying to find with the way that we write, especially when we're talking about the animals in our care? Uh, it's really interesting. I think there are some different philosophies about that. And I, I always say this to people because I feel it very deeply, but I'm not on the front lines. You know, I've, I've spent my career in animal welfare kind of as an observer and a communicator. And so I've always had a little bit of distance, which means what I'm mostly doing is sort of watching what everybody else is doing and then trying to tell stories about it. So I I wouldn't want to say you should always do this, you should never do that. But I know there's one sort of school of thought with this, which is 
adoption bios, you know, marketing is separate from counseling. So during the marketing stage, you just want to be like, come on in and get the dog. And during the counseling stage, you can say, oh, hey, they've got this little parasite problem. It's going to mean they need some treatment. You know, here's how you'll administer it. You got to keep the dog calm for a couple of months. And, it, you know, here's the crate. It'll be no problem. Some of the smartest people I know have advocated for that kind of separation between marketing and counseling. And I, I really trust their judgment on a lot of these things. I think it's also fair for some organizations to say, we don't want to waste anybody's time. And, you know, if if a dog is going to need to be sedated and treated for a couple of months while, while we treat them for this disease, you know, it's something that we want people to know from the start. But I think in that case, you know, it's it's your chance to really tell the story of what a worthy, wonderful pet this is and what a you know, what an opportunity you're giving them and what an opportunity this is for you, because you'll get the company of this absolutely amazing pet and get to tend to them through this treatment. Then at the end of it, how how much better off all of you will be for it. So I think there are definitely different ways to do it. And each organization has to decide what works best for them and what works best for their community and their pets. I would say, just when talking about it, be sure to talk about the pet as an individual you know, and be sure to talk about what this means for the pet and not to use the sort of jargon that is going to confuse people, but to put it in terms like this dog has heartworms, which is a very treatable disease. And here's our course of treatment. And here's how this, this will be involved. You know, here's what this would mean for you and, you know, and we'll support you through it. So I, I think both of those are valid ways to do it. Uh, what do you think? You've, you've been thinking about this. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some good examples of organizations that do this really well. Kristen Peralta at Vintage Pet Rescue comes to mind. Yeah. She's been on the podcast uh, talking about the work they do saving senior dogs, vintage, right? And, and you know, when we talk about senior, we're not talking about an eight-year-old dog. Uh, vintage Pet Rescue, you know, they're taking the 16-year-old chihuahua that's got a missing eye and the other one's cloudy and the limp and the tongue hanging out, yeah. no teeth. Like, who's going to adopt that dog, right? How do you even talk about that dog in a way that makes that dog sound like a companion? I don't know how many people would think dogs like that are adoptable, but the way they tell the story, it, of course, it's factual, but it's also very funny. Like you can't hide a cloudy eye and a tongue that's always hanging out, right? But they can talk about it in a way that is compelling, that doesn't make the pet sound broken. And I think always they kind of offer that the hand over the heart moment um, I just think they've done a really great job. When my friend Regina, who I used to work with at Bark Post, she and I gave up, she and I presented at the last Best Friends Conference on storytelling. And I, she told me at one point I had to stop talking about vintage pet rescue because I kept bringing them up as examples of exactly what you're saying there. How they take these pets who, who I, a lot of organizations I think would really struggle to share stories about in ways that maybe people are going to respond to. And they just do it so perfectly with such an authentic voice. And as you're saying, so much humor and they make you fall in love with that little tongue that's hanging out of the mouth. And they make you fall in love with the pet who's getting treated for whatever disease it is that they're getting treated for. Kristen is just, she is an absolute star when it comes to storytelling about about everything. But uh, yeah, she's, I would go look at all of her social media to see how it is that you tell stories about, about old dogs, sick dogs, you know, any kind of dog. We're always going to be fighting the stigma. I think from a, a segment of the public that thinks shelter dogs are broken, you know, that they're not as good as, so it makes sense. I think our natural tendency to be 
you know, to not maybe want to talk about those things to a fault in some ways, uh, in the same way, only talking about a particular pet's issues isn't good either, right? So vintage pet rescue, they've got to talk about it because the photo of the animal, you can't hide these things. Um, but yeah, it's not an easy thing to do, I don't think. No, it's definitely not easy. But I think you just hit on something that's extremely important, which is honesty. I, I mean, I think the two really important things are honesty and authenticity. The honest truth, but also an authentic voice where your followers, your readers really feel like they're developing a relationship with you and with your organization and with your pets. And so they learn to trust you. And so when you say this dog is, you know, is all of these things and it's going to need a little bit of treatment, but is, you know is really a great dog. They're going to trust you that you're telling the truth and they're going to want to be involved. Well, I've got to ask you this, Aaron, I'm sorry. Uh, and it does feel a little bit like a question from like 2009, but, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever talked to anyone with the portfolio of viral content that you have. So again, the worst question, and I know the answer, but for every person who has ever been asked to make something go viral, how do you do it? Oh gosh, John, that is, you know, if anybody could answer that question, they would never worry about eating again. <laughs> How do you go viral? I, I don't have an answer to that. I think what you do is you look for, just like we were talking about with the pictures, you look for the things that strike you and that make your heart go pitter patter and that grab your attention and that you want to share. And then you trust that that's what other people are going to be interested in too. So if there's a question you can't get off your mind and you want to go find an answer to it and you go out and find an answer to it and then share the question and the answer with your public and they'll be interested in that. If there's a video that you can't stop looking at, you know, share that because that's what it is that people are going to be interested in. I can't speak platform to platform, but I think just as a matter of kind of what captures people's attention, you know, people, people are looking for stories and content that move them and stories and content that make them laugh. And if there's something that makes you laugh, it's going to make somebody else laugh too. If there's something that, you know, you see a picture that makes you cry, it's going to make somebody else cry too. So trust your instincts and trust your gut and trust your heart and go pursue the things that mean something to you because then you will find your community of people who they mean something to as well. I can only talk about my own experience here. I did not start writing animal content thinking, oh, I'm writing this because it's going to be a huge hit. I wrote it because, you know, I, I remember the first viral story that I wrote about animals for HuffPost. It was I'd seen this picture of two pit bulls in a photo booth who were just having the best time. And I saw the picture and I saw it going crazy on Facebook. And I thought, well, oh, but there's a great story here. So I tracked down the photographer and then she put me in touch with the owners of the dogs. And it turned out both of them had been fight bus dogs. They'd both been rescued out of one of them out of a very famous dog fight bust, one of them just out of a backyard dog fight bust. And this family had adopted these two dogs. And then this photographer was doing a fundraiser for a local, they, they were in St. Louis, was doing a fundraiser for a local animal rescue group and was doing these photo booth pictures. And these two dogs got their pictures taken and they were so full of joy and so full of delight and so happy. And I got to tell their story, you know, the story behind this picture and it meant a lot to me. And then it just went sort of crazy viral on the internet. So I had been writing a bunch of animal stories, but this is the one where I think we, we finally realized like, Oh yeah, this is, this is something that readers are really hungry for is stories about animals stories about individual animals telling their stories because they're worthy of being told. And that's how I sort of found my voice and found my beat and found my community. And I think that's how 
others can too, is what, you know, what, what picture do you see that just makes your heart race and makes you want to learn more and share more and talk to more people. And, you know, you, you develop your voice that way and you develop your community that way. So I, I don't think there's, unfortunately, I don't know the simple answer to how do you make something go viral, but I, I just speaking from experience can say the way to sort of build a beat that attracts a lot of readership is to follow your interests and follow your instincts and develop your voice and develop your community. I love that you said develop your community because I think our content strategy can sometimes almost be Pavlovian, meaning we create a post, it does really well. And then we want to do more of that because it was successful. Like at HuffPo, you know, the editors there saw saw that your animal stories were doing so well. And then they were like, well, let's do more of that. We'll make that full time. So today it's 2022, right? Life is hard. Work is hard. We're overwhelmed. We're anxious. We're angry. All perfectly normal feelings. And I don't know if it's truly a trend, but I do feel like I'm seeing more and more posts where there's almost a training of themselves and their audiences and and the community to the negative, right? I, I'm, I've started calling them outrage posts. I mean, it's just so easy to take the feelings of the day and just sort of dump in on Facebook and write that post blaming someone, owners, politicians, other organizations. And, and I think it just takes one of those posts to do well. And you get kind of that validation, the catharsis from that validation, right? When your supporters are responding, thanking you, right? Because they see you're in crisis and you're not doing well. So they echo your thoughts. And But then the community starts to feed off what they're given. And I just feel like the larger rescue community, it, it's all a community, you know, shelters and rescues, we're all in this together. And I think we know that even one bad experience uh, that an adopter goes through and then the adoption process can push them away from adoption in general. So uh, all that to say, I think it's just super important to remember what we say and to whom and how. I think that's so important. I, I- think that is such an important point. And I think the other thing is, I, I mean, just God, there's so much, there's so much wrapped up in in that one comment. I mean, first of all, just acknowledging what a hard moment this is, and that everyone is struggling right now. You know, people are struggling, organizations are struggling, pets are struggling, everyone is struggling. It's just the, this combination of factors it is a very, very hard moment. And I don't blame anybody for having moments of despair right now. And I, you just had a podcast recently about mental health in animal welfare. And I, I think there was a lot of really insightful, a lot of insightful talk in that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's hard. So just acknowledging how hard this is right now, I think is really important. But then how do you talk to your community while things are so hard? And I think you have to give people hope. I think you have to give people hope for a number of reasons. One, because if you don't, people are just going to shut down. You know, you might be able to provoke some outrage, but I don't think it's going to lead to the sort of help and the sort of progress and the sort of support that that everybody needs right now. I think offering hope and ways to help are more effective as a just in terms of just sort of keeping people engaged, but also just as a long term strategy. I think I think it's a better way to do it. I think every once in a while you can have a post about the struggle you know, getting back to what we were talking about earlier about the need for honesty and authenticity. I don't think hiding how hard things are right now. I, I don't think that that helps anybody. But I don't think that sort of being relentless with that is going to prove effective. I think that turns people off. So, I, you know, being strategic about the kind of negative messages that go out, very important. I mean, I would really urge anyone not to not to try to villainize 
people who surrender their pets. I would really urge people not to villainize communities. I mean, you, you need your community and your staff and your volunteers are made up of people in your community and saying, I hate people also means you hate your staff, you hate your volunteers, you hate your adopters, you hate people who are struggling and looking for any way to try to keep an animal safe while they're having a hard time feeding and housing themselves. I feel like empathy is hard and also more effective. Um, and so I would, I, I would say acknowledging the struggle is really important and also trying to maintain hope and giving people a way to help is, is probably the way to, to talk about it. If we don't talk about any of this stuff like it's solvable, then what incentive does anyone have to even get involved? No, that's exactly right. And look, this is a field that needs some systemic change. I mean, that's I, it needs more funding. It needs more government funding. We're asking people to do life and death work for minimum wage, you know, and that, that doesn't seem right. It seems to devalue the work and it seems to devalue the animals and it seems to devalue the community. My main freelance client right now is a Human Animal Support Services Project. And we've worked a lot on programs to help people take care of their pets, even while they're struggling. I think we need a lot more of that. I think we need a lot more effective transport. You know, there, there's a lot that we need. There's a lot of systemic change that we need. And then also a lot of kind of incremental change that we need. And in the meantime, you know, we need to feel some hope because... Otherwise, exactly as you're saying, otherwise, why why should people get involved? You're an author. Your most recent book, a, a young adult novel called Your Robot Dog Will Die. Mm-hmm. So, Aaron, tell me about the book and uh, just interested in your decision to, to write a novel. So fiction. Yeah. Robot Dog was actually my third book. It was a book. I guess let me just tell you the premise of it. To start. It's a book set at a dog sanctuary off the coast of Florida for the last living dogs in the world. And it's the story of this teenage girl who's grown up in this place who thinks it's kind of the most magical place in the world. And then she starts discovering some dark secrets about its actual operation. And she has to leave home for the first time in her life to try to save what she cares about and save these dogs that she cares about. And also that it's home to this sort of next generation of robot dogs. It's kind of a test community for the robot dogs that are supposed to be replacing real live dogs. I wrote it... Gosh, I think I wrote it in 2017, 2016. It got published in 2018 by Soho Teen. And uh, it, it was sort of inspired by some reporting that I'd done at the time about, I mean, the, the kind of high level, <laughs> high level abstract part of it was, I, you know, I, not to mention an extremely litigious organization, but there was, there's one in Virginia. <laughs> Easy, easy, easy. You know, we've done a lot of wonderful things so far with this podcast, Eric. Getting sued is not on the to-do list, so please tread carefully. I mean, but publicity, right? <laughs> tread carefully. So there was there was an organization I'd heard about <laughs> that sort of was antithetical to the no-kill movement. Um, and it was it was very uh it was more in line with sort of kill them to save them. And I had done a lot of reporting on them and just trying to make sense of how anyone could believe this and work this way. And I'd written so many nonfiction articles about it and still found myself absolutely flummoxed and then realized the only way I'm ever going to be able to come to any resolution here is if I turn this into fiction and then I can make my, you know, have, have this sort of like you get catharsis through fiction, right? You tell a story, it, it has conflict and then it has resolution. And I thought, well, I'll get some resolution through writing this. 
and uh and of course there's also a love story and you know some some robot dogs who you'll fall in love with and my aim in writing it in addition to all these other things was for all the readers to come out of it just wanting to go adopt a dog and be good to animals and you know what the hardest thing about it is is making yourself sit down and actually do the work that really is it's the the time commitment it's it's saying oh, it would be really nice to go and hang out with people this afternoon. But instead, I'm going to sit here at my computer and, you know, stare at this screen until some words magically appear. Or, you know, I'm going to not do whatever it is that you want to be doing other than writing, which is just about anything. Looking for manatees, possibly? Looking for manatees. Even cleaning your house. Your house is never so clean as when you're working on a book. <laughs> but my my first book I wrote, I, I always sort of thought that I had one novel in me. And then when I was still working as a lawyer, I when I was living in Saipan, I was listening to the radio one day and uh, this guy who I'd been friends with in college, his first novel had just come out and it was a huge hit. And I heard him interviewed on NPR and I thought, well, damn it, if I'm ever going to write a book, I better just start writing it. So I started working on my first novel that day. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I just sort of felt in me that I wanted to write fiction and it was a way to kind of make sense of life and make sense of the world. And I guess I still sort of feel that way. And I'm not nearly as disciplined as I would like to be. You know, I, I finished a, a fourth novel in December and then did revisions on it through the spring. And it's out on submission now with publishers. My agent is is trying to find a publisher. I hope I hope we can, because I, I love this book. It's, it's called The Year of Alice. Uh, and now I'm sitting down to try to start writing another one um, called Dog Walker, a little mystery involving a dog walker. I think it. I think this one is, is going to be kind of fun. But yeah, I I don't know. I just sort of felt this instinct to do it and tried to do it, and now I'm keeping trying to do it. And it's I I, I don't really know how to say more than that. I mean, it's just I feel like people who write fiction have a kind of compulsion to do it. Um, in ways that you don't necessarily want. Yeah, over the years, you know, people I've known in my life who have uh, written a book, uh, it does seem like there's an awful lot of anguish in that process. Oh, it's awful. If anybody cannot be a writer, I would say definitely don't be a writer. There's so many other things that you could be. A little late for some, but thanks. Yeah, but some people, I mean, some people have a much easier time. I was just talking the other day with a novelist whose first novel came out was a massive hit. And she wrote a second novel that immediately got picked up for publication. Now she's working on a third. And she, she, had, maybe she's just very good at covering it up. She does not seem to be struggling with it in the same way. And and that is definitely like writing goals. <laughs> Did I see correctly that you uh, also very recently learned this might become a TV show? Yeah, it's very exciting. I Yeah, after all of this doom and gloom, right? So I, just this... A production company called Centerboro Productions, they uh, picked up an option for Robot Dog, which means they have bought the rights to it for a year to turn it into an animated series. And it's it's super cool. I mean, a a lot of books, like just, you know, being realistic, a lot of books get optioned. It's and it's very few of them get turned into actual movies or TV, but it's I don't know. I had a meeting with the production company last week and they have all kinds of great ideas and, you know, it seemed to be really moving forward with this. And it's, it's really exciting. This has never happened to me before. And I just kind of can't wait to see what happens with this. That's awesome. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I would love to see this world, I to see this world on screen. I mean, it's, 
it's a world that lived in my head for so long. And then, you know, I got to put it on a page and the idea that somebody else can make something of it is just, just kind of unreal. Well, we're coming up to time, but I, one thing I did want to ask you is for your advice on working with journalists. Through our network partner program, we do all sorts of events and trainings and webinars and town halls. We also have a very great podcast. And we recently did some media training for network partner folks. And one of the things they were asking for, uh, you know, more information around was working with journalists, specifically, you know, creating relationships with journalists. So talking to a journalist right now, so I just thought I could ask you, how can I develop relationships with journalists in my community? That is a great question. I would say the number one thing, you want to start building a media list. So start paying attention to who in your community is covering stories that seem like your kinds of stories. So who on TV, who in the local paper, who in your local news websites is covering stories that have anything to do with animals or anything to do with events, make a list of them, track down their contact information. You don't have to reach out to them with some sort of a perfect pitch. You can just reach out and say, hey, my name is John. I'm with Best Friends and we're, you know, I'd love to tell you more about what we're doing. We also have this adoption event coming out. You know, we'd be thrilled to have you or to have you publicize it. But even if you just want to learn more about what we're doing here, here it is. And I can take you out for a coffee and show you around and introduce you to some of our pets. Reporters are, they're just human beings. They're always on deadline. They are always looking for a story that they think their readers are going to be interested in. If it's got some sort of local connection, if you're dealing with local media, not national media, a local connection, you know, so it's happening at a local place, it's local dogs, it's local fosters, a local group, that'll be pretty important to them. If you give as much information as you can in your initial email, just to make it easy for them to figure out, is this likely a story that I'm going to be able to cover? So give them you know, the date, the time, the name of the organization, the how many pets are likely to be involved, the purpose of it, why it's important. That's all really helpful to have in there. Let them know if you'll have pictures available or videos available, or if you can get them anything before the event, that'll be really helpful for the reporters to figure out if this is something that they'll be able to cover. One thing that I always advise is just understand reporters are on weird deadlines a lot of the time. So you're going to reach out to them for something that seems very urgent to you this afternoon, but they're already knee deep in a story that's due in two hours and they might not be able to get back to you then. They might not get back to you for two weeks. They might not get back to you for two months. But if you are patient, if you are respectful, if you are helpful, eventually you will develop the kinds of relationships where you can then just text them when you have something going on. And, you know, and they'll be able to tell you right away, is this something that they can cover? Is it something not? So the steps, <laughs> make a list of the reporters, make it an evolving list, get all their contact information, start reaching out to them to introduce yourself and introduce the events and introduce whatever it is that you want them to be covering. Be understanding that they're on weird deadlines a lot of the time and might not be able to give you exactly what you want when you want it. But this is a long game. It's not a it's not a one-time thing where you need them to cover this event. This is relationship building. So even if they can't cover this event, there might be the next time that they can cover it. Or if you have a pet who needs some extra attention, they that time they might be able to cover it. So don't get frustrated the first time if they can't give you the coverage that you're looking for. But think about the next time. Think about a year from now. If they ask you questions, if they need to get an interview, if they need pictures, just put everything else down that you're working on and make sure you get them the information that they need and make sure that you help them meet their deadline. 
Because if you become the reliable source who can always get them the interview they need, who can always get them the pictures they need, you know, who gets them answers to their questions within 15 minutes, you will become a go-to source. And when they have a hole in their schedule, they're going to start calling you and saying, hey, do you have any stories for me? Hey, what do you have going on? And that's your opportunity to really start engaging the media and really start engaging the public. Uh, and, you know, so I would add, you know, I'm a former radio news journalist and I'm sitting here talking to you today because I was brought into the organization in a deeper way. So I was at KSL in Salt Lake City. I started volunteering with the Best Friends program there. Uh, and they asked me to be part of what they call the ambassador team. So uh, as a volunteer, I would go to events, set up a table, sell merch, spread the word. And, you know, honestly, I was a pretty good person to do that because uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I can talk a lot. And I knew a lot of people. I knew political people, business people, uh, you know, a lot of folks that I could leverage to help the organization. And, and of course, that was just on top of covering as many animal stories as I could. And I feel like had I not been part of that team, yeah, I mean, I still would have done stories whenever I could for sure, but engaging at that level made a huge difference. So maybe it's making, you know, a, a, a reporter, the honorary chairperson of an event, or even just free tickets to the, your big fundraising bash of the year, more engagement than just, you know, hey, here's another email about a thing we're doing. Will you bring your camera down here? You know, I mean, that stuff's great. But the more you can engage, I think the more you're going to get back. And, you know, truly, I think a great journalist that is in your corner, in your community, really worth their weight in gold. So I would say once you find them, do whatever you can to keep them. Yeah, that's a great point. And getting them involved with it, you know, you can give them an award at your at your annual dinner. You can bring them on a tour of your shelter, there's all kinds of ways that you can just sort of make them feel special and appreciated for the work that they're doing, then they do feel more engaged with you and with your organization and more, more wanting to tell your stories and wanting to be involved with what you're doing. Well, if I have my research correct, you are a board member also of a, a group there in Florida. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. We're having our annual gala this coming Saturday night, actually. It's at I'm on the board of a nonprofit shelter called Friends of Strays here in St. Petersburg, Florida. We do about 1,500 adoptions a year. And we now have, actually, it started with a grant from Best Friends. We now have a really important community cat program. We divert feral and community cats from going into our county shelter. And instead, we take them in, we fix them, we vaccinate them, and we bring them back to their outdoor homes. So we're saving a few thousand cats a year through that program now. We have an executive director who just is reaching for the stars and has all kinds of ideas about how to build partnerships and build communities and build programs that will help our county become a no-kill community, which I just think is really important. And I'm so proud to be part of this organization. Well, they've got a winner in you. And, and that's what I mean about deeper engagement, right? I mean, I'm sure you'd still support the organization if you weren't on the board. And maybe not every journalist is right for a seat on the board. But being a board member probably changes the way you're supporting Friends of Strays, you know, more than if you were just a donor or a volunteer. Yeah, that's probably right. Because it feels like, yeah, I feel very invested in Friends of Strays and in the pets at Friends of Strays and in the organization. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Yeah, find a find a writer who can serve on your board. And I realized when you were talking about it, you keep referring to the organization using the the pronoun we, right? Not them. It's us. Right. Uh, and again, I'm guessing that's not the same for others you've worked with in the past. Yeah. 
No, that's a that's a great observation. That's what I'm here for. Oh, it feels like therapy. <laughs> well, therapy, funny you mentioned that because it actually is related to my last question, which is how you manage your emotions and your emotional well-being. It's a question I've been asking a lot of guests over the last couple of years. And, you know, like you, I don't work in a shelter, but you know, I'm still in the business, right? And it's a different kind of emotional situation for me. And I'm wondering if you experience this. With the podcast, we've got to stay current on all the things all the time, right? We want this to be relevant. So we want to know what's happening on social media. You know, what are our contacts at our network partner organizations talking about? We're constantly talking to our program folks to keep up with what's happening around the country. And I just feel like I'm constantly absorbing so much stuff. And a lot of that stuff right now, as we've established, is pretty heavy stuff. So I do feel like, again, I'm kind of constantly absorbing this heavy stuff from across the country. So not just one community's heavy stuff. It just feels like a lot of communities, not just one org, a lot of orgs, right? So, and, and listen, this isn't the compassion fatigue Olympics. I'm not, it's not a competition. And uh, certainly I, I feel like what I uh, experience pales in comparison to what many deal with on a daily basis. But I do think we still feel that. So, you know, your writing, not always fun lighthearted viral type content, right? So I'm just curious how you manage all of this. Oh, it's a great question. When I was at HuffPost and I basically got to sort of set my own editorial calendar and decide what I wanted to write when I wanted to write it, I would try to just strike the right balance of serious, impactful stories, sometimes that were very difficult. And also I would call them vacation stories. So I would try to give myself like a little field trip to a fun place. Like I took a field trip to a shelter in Sarasota wants to write about a little cat obstacle course that they'd set out for an enrichment program for their cats. And that was important for me to sort of get away from the computer for a little while. And I mean, I think a lot of us know what it's like to sit at a computer all day being bombarded with difficult stuff. And, you know, and sometimes you need a break from that. And, you know, getting to go write about something that was purely joyful and purely positive or even frivolous and fun. You know, I'd try to find a frivolous and fun story to write. And, you know, if I could go drive somewhere for the day and just go talk to somebody in person and see something in person, that would give me the kind of mental break that I needed often to be able to get back and then focus back on the more challenging stories. Yeah. And these days I try to set boundaries for myself. I try to not be at the computer 24 hours a day. I try to go out paddle boarding with manatees and take a break that way. You know, I go to therapy. I, I have a therapist who I talk to and that really helps too. Yeah, I go visit my family. I live in Florida. My family is up in New England. My brother and my, my parents are in Rhode Island. I go visit them while I've just come back from visiting them. These are outlets that I have available to myself. When I've talked to people who work in shelters about how they kind of deal with burnout and compassion fatigue and stress. I mean, a, a lot of them talk too about compartmentalization and taking vacations and setting boundaries. And I think having enough pay and having enough vacation time and, you know, having enough staff that, that people can take the vacations that, that they need. And I think those are, those are pretty important things to be able to access you know, I, I just recently got to write about this one shelter that has a program where anybody can shadow anybody else for a half a day and learn their job. What the, the person who told me about it told me is that that has helped a little bit because it means that now everyone at the shelter is kind of 
understands each other's jobs better and they're able to both be more compassionate toward each other, but also support each other better in the role. So I, I think that probably helps. Um, but I, yeah, when I was at HuffPost, I would take little, I called them vacation stories. And now it's just the, the things that everybody tries to do. I try to set boundaries. I go to therapy. Well, you go to therapy. I also go to therapy and I have on and off for just about as long as I can remember. And I, I think it's important that we talk about this stuff and we talk about it out loud. And I hope that everyone at the very least has an employee assistance program or other resources available. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm just glad you're willing to share because I think sometimes we forget that this work can be taxing on everyone doing it regardless of role. Uh, you know, I just don't think we should ever downplay feelings that we have and, and say, you know, I shouldn't feel like this because I'm not doing this type of work or believe that because our role is easier, we perceive it to be easier or less stressful than someone else's. I mean, listen, man, we're all struggling, you know? Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because my tendency really is to minimize how I feel about these things because I'm not on the front line. And I really do know that through my whole career in animal welfare, I've been in the privileged position of just getting to talk to people about the work instead of actually doing it. I really do recognize that that, that sort of sets an inherent boundary, but you're right. I mean, there there is a way that then there's a, there's a fire hose of it too. And I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I, I think, I guess the, the sort of, sincere but possibly Pollyanna answer is to find some way to be helpful. You know, I feel like a lot of burnout and a lot of getting overwhelmed comes from not being able to do anything. You know, it's sort of getting back to what we talked about earlier. It comes from a feeling of hopelessness and helplessness. And I think trying to find some way to help if it's by sharing some information or making people laugh or, you know, uh, coming up, you know, I, I, I'll just all the different ways that all of us try you know, but something that you feel is actually making a difference to somebody. I, I think that helps too. Well, we've talked a lot, Aaron, and I just want to make sure there wasn't something you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about yet. Oh gosh, I don't know. I guess just I'm grateful that I get to work in this world. I find it very meaningful. I care a lot about this and I feel very lucky to have been in the position where I've gotten to know the people who are doing this really hard work and innovating the ideas that are saving lives and I just, that's it. I just a real feeling of gratitude that I get to be a part of this. Well, it takes all of us, Aaron, and the role you've played to help educate millions and millions of people through all the amazing content you've created over the years and the stuff you're doing now, you know, to educate folks through the Haas project and the, the books. I mean, the movement is better off with you in it. And I'm glad to know you. Well, that's very kind. I'm glad to know you, John. Thanks. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>